How's everyone doing today? You good? It's officially summer, and I kind of love it. It's pretty awesome. I'm so excited to be with you here today because we're going to continue our series, Upside Down. It's a look at Jesus' most famous sermon, known today as the Sermon on the Mount, how revolutionary his teachings are and how they really turn upside down everything we think. It defied philosophies and mindsets over 2,000 years ago, and I believe that it still rages against the norm today. But these culture-defying truths are not meant to just offer a shock value. I actually believe that what's found in these few chapters, Matthew 5 through 7, actually is truth that when put into practice transforms every facet of our lives, from our finances to our careers to our personal health. Jesus is in the transforming business, and I believe that his truth can do that. And, and I actually believe that we can receive transformation from truth in the area that perhaps we need it most in our relationships, in how we treat each other, and how we relate to each other, and how we respond to the way others treat us, and how we work together, and help each other, and fight with each other, and learn from each other. Because let's be real, it's not easy. Like, show of hands, let's do a quick exercise in this room. How many of you have ever been taken advantage of by somebody else? Will you raise your hand? truth moment here. Okay, let's, let's keep the exercise going. Why don't you keep your hands lifted and you can put it down if this no longer applies to you. All hands up in the room since we kind of started with everybody. Okay, how many of you have ever been judged unfairly? How many of you have ever upset somebody? How many of you have ever fought with somebody you care about? How many of you have ever disliked someone? Be real, you just don't like them. How many of you would recognize humbly that there are people that don't like you? Amen. <laughs> Amen, yes. Uh, how many of you have ever unfollowed someone on social media because they posted something that bothered you so much? Okay, okay. Well, I think it's safe to say that we all need some divine insight on how to treat each other in a world that isn't that great at treating each other. And so today we're going to take a look at Jesus' teaching, some of the portions of his most famous sermon, so that we can gain divine wisdom on how to thrive relationally even in difficult moments. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading in verse 21. So as you've heard, this is Jesus, that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, would be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Is it just me, or does it sound like Jesus elevated anger to the same level of murder here? Like, does anybody else find that a little bit challenging? 
And then a few verses later, Jesus goes on to say this. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, then turn the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I'm going to be real. This doesn't sound all that exciting, right? Like, like there's lots of cheeks being slapped around. And as I say that out loud, it sounded very different in my head. And, and important items of clothing being given away and walking extra long miles and giving away all you have. Like, this is not exciting stuff. This is certainly not the product I'm standing in line for. You know what I mean? And then Jesus says, but wait, there's more. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is some challenging stuff to hear, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It sounds like by following Jesus and his teachings that we now become a doormat for everybody to walk on, that there's a target on our back saying, please take advantage of me, that we're no longer entitled to feel the very real emotion of anger when somebody hurts us, and that if we falter from absolute passivity in any sense of the way when responding to people, that we're going to be treated with a really harsh judgment. Like, how could this possibly be good for us? How could this possibly make things better? Well, in order to explain that, let me share with you a little journey I've been on recently. I've recently taken up indoor rock climbing. And by taken up, I mean I've been twice in two and a half months. I'm basically a pro. And it was actually my boyfriend Ben's idea to go. And we had such a great time. We went to Brooklyn Boulders. We had a great time. We even took a class where they taught us how to belay each other so we could use the ropes. And by the end of that class, as we were leaving, we had convinced ourselves that we were going to go once a week or at least twice a month. You know, we were completely delusional because it took us a month and a half before we got back, but we went back. And the second time we went back, we were going with a couple friends, but before, we were grabbing a, quite, uh, a quick bite to eat at a diner. And so we're there, and all of a sudden I realized, wait, we have to take a test today. The second time you go back, you have to take a test to be certified in belaying each other so you can use the ropes. You know, in order to have fun that day, I was going to have to pass a test. Now, this was troubling to me, and I started to freak out because that was a long time ago. And I was like, Ben, I don't remember anything from that class. Like, so much has happened since then. It was like all the information has just gone, and it's been replaced with lines from Kimmy Schmidt after binge-watching on Netflix. Like, this is what I have going on. And he's like, don't worry about it. I got you. So he passes his phone over to me, and I begin to search for knowledge on the most reliable source of information on the Internet, YouTube tutorials. Yes. And so... I watched this one that you can, I think the picture, this guy right here, Cliff, I watched him for four minutes and 10 seconds, five different times as he explained to me the art of rope climbing. And, and I, I memorized the, the movements. I, I knew the lingo. I was cramming for this test. Like I was ready. And I was picturing that an hour and a half later that Ben and I would be having this experience. Show the next photo, please. See, just having a great time, right? Now. Fast forward an hour and a half later when I'm at Brooklyn Boulders and the instructor says to me, you have failed. You are not getting certified today. Go play with the kids over there. 
Okay, he didn't say the last part, but he did with his eyes. They were so judgy, you know. I failed. I failed the test. And I was so surprised because I had studied. I was shocked because I had actually crammed for this test. But here's why I failed. Because my memory of rock climbing since the last time I had been was of me getting in the harness and me starting to climb and me flexing my muscles, which some of you are like, you don't have any, but I was flexing them, and, 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 and taking new ground and climbing to the top and, and looking high above everybody else, the glory moments of rock climbing. So that's what I remembered, so that's what I studied for, me rock climbing. But what I didn't remember is that that's only half of what it takes to rock climb that you also have to know how to be an anchor on the ground to somebody else as they climb, that you have to actually be a support and you have to hold them and belay them with the ropes so that they can safely ascend. But I didn't remember any of that. That was not in my recollection because let's be real, that's the boring part, right? Like you don't go rock climbing so you can have a great arm workout while you're watching somebody else soar high above you. You tolerate that part at best. No, when you go rock climbing, you think about you taking new ground, you climbing, you pushing limits. It's all about you rock climbing. And I think that's human nature. I think we tend to view situations and opportunities through the lens of how it can assist us in our climb. We tend to give value to people based on how much they can help us take new heights. We even tend to view our faith through the lens of Jesus giving us the strength to climb and conquer and not so much our divine responsibility to help our fellow man soar high as well. And here Jesus is challenging that way of thinking. He's saying success is not simply you getting to the top, it's helping other people make the climb as well. And it's recognizing that the only reason that you take new ground in your life is because there's people along the way who are willing to humble themselves and take on the position of anchoring you in forgiveness and acceptance and support. And that the best possible gift we can give somebody is not our personal ascent upward, but it's in the moments when we too do the hard work at the bottom of loving and forgiving and seeking reconciliation along the way. Jesus is saying here, it's time to flex your muscles so that you could see other people soar. That success is not just about you, it's about what you can give to other people. Even those who hurt you, even those who mistreat you, even those who judge you, because they too are children of God, which means they too have an opportunity, a God-given opportunity to soar as well. And then when we recognize that, then we're willing to take moments to anchor people so that they could climb high. And so let's take another look again at what Jesus has said through this lens so that we can learn what it means to anchor others in forgiveness and reconciliation in the midst of a really hostile and broken world that we live in. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And I totally get this because, man, I hate it when people call me Raka. I'm like, seriously, you don't know me, right? No, this is probably an insult we're not familiar with. This is probably not the term that growing up made the kids cry at school. But in Jesus' time, it would have been very relevant. It was an Aramaic word that came from the, a Hebrew word meaning rock, which was to be empty. It was basically saying somebody was empty-headed. It was an attack on their thoughts and their intellect. It was saying that you have no knowledge or, or thought to bring to the table that's of value. And basically it was calling somebody worthless. And fool is a term that we might know, but it was much more of an insult in Jesus' time than it is now. It was actually to show 
contempt for someone's character. It was to say to somebody that there was something deeply wrong with their morality and therefore something deeply wrong with them. Raka was an attack on somebody's intellect and their capacity. Fool was an attack on somebody's character and morality. And it doesn't get more personal than that. These aren't just words that sting. It's actually an assault against somebody's value and worth as a person. And Jesus here is saying, love is not simply physically restraining yourself from hurting somebody. It's not just an act of nonviolence. That's not love, that's self-restraint. Love is recognizing that with our words and our deeds, we have the ability to either build people up or to tear them down, to either strip away somebody's worth or value or to speak into their worth and value. And that when we begin to decide based on our own preferences and our own prejudices, who is a smart person and who is a dumb person and who is worth our time and who isn't worth our time and who's a good person and who's a bad person, we're no longer operating out of love, but out of hate. Because isn't that what hate does? It always seeks to strip a human being of worth and value. But love, on the other hand, has a different effect. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says love builds up. And so here Jesus is teaching us a way, teaching us to use our words and our deeds to actually add value to people and not to take it away, to recognize the impact we play in building others up. But he doesn't stop there. Then he does something that's actually quite brilliant as a communicator. Because most of the audience listening to this, most of Jesus' disciples, when they would have heard Jesus denounce Raka and Fool, they, they would have thought of the times that they had been personally insulted and the wrongs done to them, and they would have felt somehow vindicated, justified. They would have thought about the people who are showing this kind of blatant hatred, and they would have thought, man, these, these people really need to be here to hear this message. Similar to how some of us are assessing this message right now, we're thinking, man, she or he really needs to be here because that big jerk needs to learn how to be a kinder person, right? If we hear this message and automatically we play victim and point the finger. But Jesus, once again, turns it upside down on us. Because Jesus says this. If you are offering your gift at the altar and therefore remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. And settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Jesus is very quick to remind us that when it comes to this conversation, the very first place to look and examine is our own hearts and our own actions. That before we can talk about how others have mistreated us, and yes, we'll get there, we first have to recognize that whether intentionally or unintentionally, we too have mistreated others. That we too have been guilty of stripping somebody with deeds and words of their value and their worth. That we too need forgiveness. And Jesus says, when you begin to recognize that in your life, and you know that that's happening, then do whatever it takes quickly to make it right. Jesus says, go and leave your gift at the altar. If you remember in your act of worship, then, then in the middle of that act, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother or sister, to, to your fellow believer. Now, we don't live in the era of altars around here, right? So some of this might get missed on us. But imagine for a second that you are actually living in Jesus' time period and you are a Jewish worshiper because this is the audience that Jesus is speaking to and you are trying to practically assess how would I live out this teaching. You know, you would, you would be going to the temple, the synagogue, you'd be ready to make your sacrifice and you're physically carrying your sacrifice through town, which means people are seeing you along the way. 
They're seeing you fulfill your religious duty. There's a public persona being put out there that when it comes to religion, when it comes to worship, you are on point, right? And, and so you go through the town, people see this, you get up, you go before the priest, you're in the middle of giving your gift, and all of a sudden you remember, oh man, last week Zach totally overheard me talk smack about him at Joel's birthday party. But, I mean, we're not really that close of friends, and he didn't say anything, but I know he heard. I know it probably put a strain on, on our relationship. I don't know. I mean, you have a choice to make if you're going to follow Jesus' teachings. And so if you're going to follow Jesus' teachings, then you're going to be like, excuse me, Mr. Priestman, sorry, sorry, but we, we can't actually go any further here. i got to go. Sorry, I'm going to leave my gift here. I'll be back soon, but i got to go. And the priest is probably like, uh a little bit disrespectful here, like, like, can't you see that we're in the middle of something? He's like, yeah, but I, I really upset a friend, so I got to go. And then he starts running through town, and people who saw him on the way, who saw them going to worship, are thinking, hey, man, that's fast, everything okay, what, what's going on? And then he'd be like, oh, yeah, I got to go, I, I just realized that I totally upset Zach, I did something wrong to him, and I got to make it right. Like, of course, this is a very liberating moment, but it's also pretty humbling, if you're going to follow Jesus' teaching here, then you're not just going to lay your gift down at the altar. You're also going to lay down your pride. You're going to be willing to forgo your public persona in the pursuit of reconciliation. And then Jesus says, settle matters quickly before you even get to court. Now, court is a place where accusations are made and defenses are given. It's a place where somebody is deemed guilty or not guilty. It's a place where one party wins and another party loses. And if you're being taken to court, at least it's a place where you can personally plead your case in order to receive some sort of form of justice. But here Jesus is saying, love is actually willing to settle the matter, to make it right, without accusations being thrown and defenses being made. Love is even willing to forgo justification in order to make it right with a brother or sister in Christ. The question really is, how far are we willing to go to make it right with somebody that we've wronged? Like, what are we willing to sacrifice? Our image? Our pride? Our justification? What are we willing to do to ask for forgiveness and to pursue reconciliation? Jesus paints this very vivid picture for us of what to do when we realize we've wronged others, but then Jesus goes on to actually tell us what to do when others have wronged us. Jesus said, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. In other words, you give it to me, I give it right back to you. You mess with me, I mess with you, right? And some of us would call that righteous retribution. Some of us would call that a form of self-respect. Some of us would call that survival of the fittest. Some of us would call that what you do to God to make it in this world. But for us living in New York, we just call that another day on the subway, right? I remember one day last year, I was getting on the subway and it was really crowded. And there was this much larger, taller gentleman standing behind me and he just kept shoving me to try to get into the train. But there was nowhere we could go because we were still waiting for people to get out and exit before we could get on. And he just kept doing this. And I don't know what happened to me, what overtook me, but I turned around and I had to like physically look up at him. And I said, shove me one more time and see what happens, right? And I don't know, it's like, like flashes of crazy he saw in my eyes. And he's like, I know crazy. And so he just like stepped back and went to a different, you know, car. And I don't know what I was thinking. It wasn't like I could follow through with that threat, you know, like, like, what the heck? You know, like, oh, oh, I mean, 
do it again and I'll scold you with my words, you know, like do it again and I'll vent about it on Instagram story, like, ooh, so scary. But I gotta say that when he actually left and I walked into that subway, I was like walking a little bit taller. Like I felt good, you know? Like I was like, yeah, do not mess with this. You do not know me, like insert Wonder Woman power pose. You know, like this is what I'm thinking because this is what we're taught winning looks like. This is what we're taught winning feels like. It's like standing up for your rights and it's, it's not letting anybody get in the way of your happiness and if they do, then eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, baby. And Jesus is here to say, wait a minute, instead of that, how about you don't resist an evil person? Say what? All right. And you said, okay, here. I'll give you some examples. Like, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, then turn to them the other cheek also. Now, before we just assume that this means Jesus is saying, please be a walking punching bag, we should probably understand context here. And Jesus' time to be slapped this way would most likely mean that you're being slapped by the back of the hand, which was more of an insult than an act of violence. Jesus here is saying, how are you going to respond when you're insulted? Are, are you going to insult back or are you going to engage, are you going to refuse to engage in a slapping contest? When somebody says something pretty rude on Facebook to you, what are you going to do? Are you, are you going to begin a very public and heated debate online or are you going to refuse to join in the slapping contest? When a colleague says things about you to try to steal some clientele, are you then going to make it public your dislike for this person or are you gonna to refuse to engage in a slapping contest? When you're walking down the street and you bump into somebody and that stranger has some very choice words to say to you, are you gonna respond with some equally interesting words or are you gonna to refuse to engage in a slapping contest? Jesus is saying here, when you're insulted, what are you gonna do? Because if you're gonna live by the law of love, then you're gonna find the inner peace and strength to refrain from repaying insult with insult. And then Jesus says this. He says, if anyone wants to see you or sue you and take your shirt, then hand over your coat as well. Now, in Jesus' time, the coat would have been an indispensable piece of clothing. It was so important. It was this outer robe that people would wear that even if they gave it to somebody else in a pledge, the other person had to return it to them before sunset. Because many times, this was actually used as, as their, like, comforter as well. This is what kept them warm at night. And Jesus isn't advocating that we have clothing drives for every evil person, right? And, and, and he's not saying that we need to be in an ongoing abusive or unhealthy relationship or partnership. Jesus has context here of when you're being sued. Hopefully that's not an everyday occurrence. Hopefully that's a rare event. But he's saying when you find yourself in the unique situation where somebody is asking of you more than what should be expected, then don't just give the minimum. Give something that's of value. Like be willing to give what is of value to you, to someone who is not valuing you at the moment because you recognize that you are valued by God and he will richly provide for all of your needs. And then Jesus goes on to say, when you're forced to go one mile, go an extra mile. Now this is kind of lost on us too because, I don't know, it's like when's the last time you are forced to go a mile, right? It's not like somebody's like, hey you, I demand you today to walk with me further than you want to on the way to the subway. Like no, that doesn't happen, right? But in Jesus' time, this was a common practice. Roman government officials and military personnel could at any point exert their authority over the Jewish people by forcing them to do manual labor, including walking a mile carrying a heavy load. This would have been 
forced servitude and therefore degrading. It would have been a humiliating act. But by going an extra mile, not only are you carrying the load that you don't want to carry, but you're actually relieving another Jew of having to do what they would have done. So Jesus is saying here, are you willing to not only bear the burden of injustice, but are you also willing to find sympathy and compassion and bring help to those who equally are on the receiving end of injustice? Are you willing to go out of your way when you're already carrying a heavy load to make sure that somebody else doesn't have to as well? And then Jesus goes on to say, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, most of us would agree that, that giving to the poor is a good thing to do. It's a decent act, giving to those in need. And so would have Jesus' audience listening to this. But that's not the context in which Jesus is writing this. Remember, he started this by saying, do not resist an evil person. He, he's talking about the people that we don't think deserve our gift. He's saying, give to the person who has no intention of giving back to you. Like, be generous without expecting anything in return. Like bless those who will not bless you back. And this is mind-blowing. This kind of treatment towards others in the face of our own mistreatment. And just when we think, wow, what more could we hear? Then Jesus goes on to say, and by the way, love your enemies. Now, i got to be real. I'm studying this with you right now, and I'm like at a place where I'm like, okay, Jesus, you're already telling me that I have to like swallow my pride and make things right quickly and admit when I'm wrong. Then you're telling me that I have to respond with self-restraint and compassion and sacrifice and generosity when people mistreat me. And now you want me to love my enemies? Like for reals, Jesus, love my enemies. These are people who are out to harm me. And Jesus like, yes, love them and pray for them. Pray for them. It's interesting, of all the things that Jesus could have assigned to the tangible expression of loving your enemies, he says pray. And he's so committed to this idea of us praying for our enemies that he actually, in the very next chapter, in Matthew chapter 6, includes it in part of the prayer that he teaches the disciples to pray. He says, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now this would have been striking to hear from the disciples and those listening. Because in Jesus' time, in first century uh, era, the Jews, it was common for them to actually pray around three times a day. They would pray privately or they'd pray in groups of 10. So Jesus here, including this as a part of what you would pray, isn't just saying, okay, I know it's hard to hear, pray for your enemies and those who've wronged you. So why don't you just do it once, suck it up, sailor, get it over with, and check it off the list of things that Jesus tells me to do that I don't want to do, right? And he isn't saying... Okay, so every now and again, when you have time to really reflect, you know, the one or two times a year, you're like, I'm going to start journaling, right? Uh, you, you start thinking about your life and go, hmm, you know, 
there's somebody that I, I haven't really forgiven here. I think it's time. It's been long enough. I'm going to let that go and move on. This is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that loving your enemies, loving our enemies, and praying for those who have wronged us is so central to our faith that it must become a daily practice. It must be a daily ongoing discipline. Loving our enemies is a lifestyle. Choosing to forgive those who've wronged us is a daily discipline grounded in all things, grounded in prayer. And why prayer? Because when you start talking with God about those who have hurt you and wronged you, God is faithful to talk back. He's faithful to show us things that perhaps we didn't see, to give us perspectives that we didn't know. And suddenly we find this impossible task of loving our enemies, something that isn't so impossible after all. That as we pray for them, and as we pray to forgive those who've wronged us, then we find ourselves seeing them with compassion and love like we didn't even know was possible. And we find ourselves on the receiving end from heaven of all of the strength and the grace we need to forgive and to pursue reconciliation. This teaching might be hard to hear and it's personal and we all have stories that we bring to the table of this conversation, but for me, this message, it matters, not because it's just words in the Bible, but because when it is put into practice, it does change your life. I know this personally. It matters to me because I've seen the impact that it makes. A couple years ago, I went through a really difficult time, and it's even hard for me to articulate exactly how to explain in context of this conversation because there's people that I care about deeply and I certainly want to be protective of them, but for a number of different reasons and challenging circumstances, I found myself at a place where some of the people that were the closest to me and the dearest to me betrayed me, mistreated me, and took advantage of me. And there's a lot of things that I wanted to do when that happened. I wanted to retaliate. I wanted to speak my mind. I wanted to publicly justify and defend myself. I wanted to run and hide. I wanted to avoid it altogether. I wanted to do all of those things. But I didn't. Because for one reason or another, I just found myself at a place in my life where I was like, you know what? Maybe I should test the waters of this. Maybe I should see if Jesus really knows what he's talking about when it comes to reconciliation and forgiveness and a life of peace. And so even though it didn't feel good and it didn't make sense, and let me tell you, I did not do it perfectly. There were a lot of moments when I was kicking and screaming with Jesus the whole time of putting this into practice. And even though I really believed that by doing this, I was going to be anchoring myself in reconciliation and forgiveness and compassion while other people were soaring at my expense, that I was going to lose while other people were winning, that I was going to find myself just 
in this place of being a martyr of the injustices done to me, that there was no way that this could actually be to my benefit on paper. The most amazing thing began to happen. Even though I was the one picking the lowly position the best I could of anchoring others in reconciliation and forgiveness, I began to soar. Like I began to soar where it counts, like in here. I began to experience peace like I'd never known before. I began to experience joy like I didn't know before. I began to see people with new levels of compassion. I began to look at my own experiences in my own life and the choices that I'd made in that season, and I was able to humbly but without shame as well be able to recognize the places that I needed to grow and the places that I needed to ask for forgiveness for. I, I was able to understand God's love and his forgiveness in a way that I hadn't in my life up until this point. I began to soar. And friends, that's my prayer for you, that you would soar, that you too would experience the peace and the freedom and the love that is found in putting into practice Jesus' teachings so that you too could rise to new heights in your heart and in your life, even while you are loving those in the midst of some difficult times. So I actually have four thoughts, four quick questions I want us to ask our week, leaving this conversation to help us tangibly begin to soar in these areas of our lives. First question is this, is there someone who has something against me or that I have wronged or offended and how can I make it right this week? Number two, how can I practically extend kindness and generosity this week to someone who is not treating me justly? Number three, is there an enemy I will need to be praying for? And will I begin praying for them this week? And number four, how can I begin adding a couple minutes of daily reflection in my prayers, making time to forgive those who have sinned against me? Friends, truthfully, this is all possible. We can live out this life of love and forgiveness. We can choose compassion and generosity and sacrifice ultimately and simply because Jesus has done this and more for us. He is the ultimate example of love and forgiveness. In fact, the Bible says that for God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting, have eternal life. Jesus came, the son of God, simply to reconcile us to God. And he was willing to give his very life on the cross and pay the price for us that we could never pay for ourselves to offer us true forgiveness and love and acceptance, a fresh start and a new beginning. He did for us what we couldn't do. He made right for us what we can't make right on our own. He actually showed the full extent of his forgiveness when, when he was on the cross feeling the most agony anybody could ever feel, the most pain, the brutal torture, carrying the weight of all of the sins of humanity on his shoulders. He said this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even then, he was showing us forgiveness. And not only did he die for us, but he rose from the dead so that by placing our faith in him, we could have the assurance of eternal life, knowing that we are heaven-bound, not based on anything that we've done or haven't done, but based on his love and his forgiveness and him making a way for us 
And I think this is important for us to hear because I have a feeling that there's some of us in this room, maybe some of us watching online, that you just feel far from God. And you feel like God's angry at you. You feel like he's pointing an accusing finger at you. And you have to know this is not the way of God. God has love and forgiveness and acceptance to offer us. And it can begin today for you. He loves you. He's for you. He wants you to experience the very best life of peace and joy and freedom. He wants to offer you a hope that surpasses the, under, the, the circumstances of your life and a peace that surpasses understanding in your life. And it can begin for you today, simply receiving the forgiveness and the love that God has for you through Jesus Christ. By placing your faith in Jesus and choosing to become a follower of Jesus, you can be reconciled to God. You can know what it means to have a personal relationship with God, to know that you're loved by God, that he has great plans for your life. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Church Podcast. If you are in New York City or will be visiting the New York area soon, please be our guest on Sunday. For service times and locations, please visit libertychurchnyc.com.